morning. Please be seated. We have two cases for argument this morning. Carver County and Minnesota County's Intergovernmental Trust versus Chad Smith and uh, petition for disciplinary action against Villanueva. We'll take the Carver County case first. Uh, Mr. Jung, you've reserved 10 minutes for rebuttal. Yes, Your Honor. You may proceed when you're ready. Thank you. May it please the court, counsel. My name is Timothy Jung, representing Carver County in this matter. I'm here on behalf of Carver County to request that this court reinstate the factual findings of the compensation judge regarding a fact issue before us and whether the injured employee, allegedly injured employee, sustained an injury in the nature of post-traumatic stress disorder arising out of his work as a deputy sheriff with Carver County. We're also here to undo and return to the plain meaning our understanding of the applicable statute, that being the definition of mental impairment contained in MnSTAT 176011 subdivision 15D. The Court of Appeals has misinterpreted that statute and created an unworkable scenario. But I'd like to begin with the fact question, because I think it's essential here that the question of whether or not the employee sustained a compensable uh, mental impairment was decided by the fact finder. And this was a vigorous um, litigation with a number of fact issues under which... Uh, Counsel, can you, direct, yes. can you direct me to exactly what findings um, you're relying on? I know there's multiple findings, but as far as detailed findings related to the expert testimony. Yes, Your Honor. Findings 43 and 44 are two different findings regarding the expert testimony. In finding 43, the Workers' Compensation Court of Appeals said, this is vacated, that 43 is where the compensation judge had evaluated the employee's expert and rejected the employee's expert as not persuasive. And if you read the WCACCA decision, there's not one word about why the compensation could not reject Dr. Keller's opinion. Well, counsel, um, basically all in 43 and 44 that the comp judge says is that one expert's opinions are persuasive and one are not. I'm really troubled by the fact there's, there's no discussion whatsoever of what was persuasive and what wasn't persuasive. How can a, a reasonable reviewer um, decide to give any deference to this comp judge's findings with regards to the experts? I think the good question, but I think it's very clear from two, two sources why we can rely on them. First, uh, the compensation judge made 44 other findings. So he went through all of the evidence, and we were disputing a number of ideas in this case. There was analysis of the contemporaneous medical records. There was analysis of witness testimony, the demeanor of the witnesses. There was analysis of two different experts. Um, and if you look at the statute, 176.371, the statute, the legislature does not require the compensation to do more than decide the disputed issues of fact. Counsel, and on that point, is this an area of law in which you regularly practice? Yes, Your Honor. So these, I've been on the court, I guess it's more than 13 years now, and we review these comp judge opinions, and I just wonder if you could help 
um, the analysis in, the, in this comp judge's opinion seems to me, in my experience, to be pretty consistent with how the comp judges go about their work. Yes, Your Honor. And I've been practicing law for 31 years in the workers' compensation system, and there's a range of compensation judge practices. Many compensation judges simply decide the issues. It's not at all unusual for the compensation judge to make this determination on a paper record. That's correct. In fact, it would be unusual for experts to appear live to testify in this circumstance, wouldn't it? It would definitely be unusual. In fact, the statute, I can't give you the number right now, indicates that you must have permission to, prevent, to present evidence other than in paper. In fact, I cannot, without permission from the trial judge, bring a doctor into the, into the trial. So yes, it is the rule, it is actually the presumption that it's on a paper record. Now here we have much more because we had trial deposition transcripts. The practice is generally there's no deposition transcripts at all. There's simply expert reports, treating doctor reports, sometimes IMEs, sometimes no IMEs. I try many cases where I simply indicate the employee has not met his burden of proof and I have no expert at all. And of course, the court is aware of the, the employee holding the burden of proof under MinStat 176.021. In terms of the employee's burden here, was the employee's expert board certified? No, he was not. So that's a significant question. If you read the beginning of my cross-examination of Dr. Keller, he's a non-board certified psychologist from a non-accredited university, primarily online. I asked him, were you board certified? He said, what do you mean? I don't know what that means. So yes, that's the kind of thing that the fact counsel wouldn't is that have wouldn't for. that precise fact among many others wouldn't that have been helpful for a reviewing court to know in terms of why he found one doctor persuasive and not another to say precisely what you just said for one thing that Mr. Keller was not board certified wouldn't that be something because as I look at this record I don't know why the comp judge found one doctor persuasive as opposed to another. I know that he reviewed all this very detailed substantive record, but the why he made the choice that he made. Um, so your question about whether it would be helpful, I guess I can't answer that perhaps, yes. But is it required? There's nothing in our jurisprudence that requires it. In fact, we well, have a it's clearly a helpful because that's why you started off with it in your, your cross-examination. It, it meant something to you. It meant something to me and a persuasion to the fact finder. I wasn't thinking about the record on appeal. I was there to win the case before the fact finder. I wanted to win the case based on all the evidence. And yes, I believe our expert is much more qualified and had foundation. But the key here, as a reviewing court, you do have enough information to know what happened. You do know that Dr. Uh, Arbisi had read all the medical records. You do know that he had read Dr. Keller's report. We know that he had interviewed uh, the employee, did an MMPIRF. He did detail. There's never been a discussion in this case at any level that Dr. Arbisi didn't have enough information or that the compensation judge didn't have enough information to make a decision. So in a perfect world, does a, does a compensation judge explain every case? I suppose in a perfect world, but that's not the jurisprudence we have, and it's not the statutory framework we have. I mean, the framework, and I, the cases talking about how little a compensation needs to say are in our brief, but the statute in question is where it begins, 
and that's 371. And the statute only requires the compensation judge decide the issues of fact before him. So it, it says a compensation judge's decision shall include a memorandum only if necessary to delineate the reasons for the decision or to discuss the credibility of witnesses. And oh. we do have case law, not said in your brief, but that requires more than just a conclusory decision, right? Not really, Your Honor. I would disagree. Well, I, there are. I'm telling you there well, are. There's, but there, there are there, so each case that you cite are, are on its own facts. Yeah. And there's probably 300 cases that talk about how much a judge needs to put in it. And, there, and from the WCCA, they range. And sometimes they say there's enough there, and sometimes they don't. Um, so I don't think there's a clear articulated minimum from those WCCA cases other than to say you must comply with 371. And again, if, if, if necessary is the language I'm relying on, Your Honor. And when is it necessary? I mean, it's not like we have four or five findings of fact here. We have 44 at least going through all of the evidence. So we know the compensation judge did his job and anal analyzed it. Now, whether he decided the employee didn't meet criterion B or C, I guess we don't know, but there's nothing in our jurisprudence that requires him to go to that level of detail to say which aspect of the DSM-5 wasn't complied with. And, and let me get to the, some of the legal issues because I want to make sure I don't spend all my time on this, but I'm obviously taking any questions you would like. But so, so the second problem, besides the fact that the compensation judge's findings of fact, which were clearly articulated as far as what he determined in 44 findings, and the WCCA flipping some of those, not making a word about it. Speaking of not explaining themselves, why couldn't the compensation judge reject an expert? But then the, comp, then the Court of Appeals then creates what appears to be a different standard and a different framework going forward. So they've remanded the case back to the compensation judge, who, by the way, has retired, so I don't know how we're going to do that. And then they say the question for the compensation judge is, did their expert comply with the statute and say now we're no longer going to have a world where there's different experts for the compensation judge to consider. It's some sort of idea that because there's a definition in the statute, we're never going to have a disagreement from experts. And we've been litigating what an MRI means, what an EMG means, what more objective tests than the DSM-5 mean. Doctors disagree with them all the time. So how do we go back to the court of, back to the trial court? And the only question for the trial court is, did the judge comply? Does the expert comply? And so the, the, what the WCCA has created is a situation where an employee could be found having a compensable PTSD injury who doesn't have PTSD. I mean, the statute itself starts with this. This is the amended 2013 statute, which you are the first court to, to weigh in on. This is uh, 176011, subdivision 15D. For the first purpose of this chapter, mental impairment means a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder by a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, period. That's what it means. And then the second sentence talks about you have to follow the recent current version of the DSM. And so the Court of Appeals is saying the only thing that the, the fact finder gets to decide is whether the employee's expert complies with the DSM. Doesn't even answer the first sentence. Does this person have PTSD? So the question isn't, do you comply with 
DSM-5, it's whether the employee has PTSD, and that is to be decided by a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist. And if we weren't requiring a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, why do we put that in there if it's just a checklist? Obviously, the court wants to make this something credible by having people who understand this psychological diagnosis, psychiatrists or psychiatrists, psychologists, psychiatrists, use the tools of a psychologist or a psychiatrist to determine whether they have PTSD. That's where we start. And the Court of Appeals has decided that the employer's expert somehow didn't diagnose or fail to diagnose PTSD and didn't use the Counsel, applicable rule. if I may, it, it, it seems to me, though, that you're, you're sort of dissecting that paragraph in a way that, that um, just doesn't seem reasonable to me. I mean, clearly the first part, as you say, says that mental impairment means a diagnosis of PTSD by a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist. So you, that's clear. You've got someone like that. Can't, can't be me diagnosing. Me can't neither. be you. Not a family um, doctor. So... But then it goes on to say, for purposes of this chapter, you, the way you diagnose that post-traumatic stress disorder is by looking to the DSMV. So I, I'm, not, I'm just not sure why you're, you're dissecting those two. Well, I'm doing it because I want to make clear that the standard is, does the person have PTSD? And then PTSD is defined by the DSM currently five. So we have no quibble with the fact that PTSD is defined by DSM-5, but you start with a diagnosis. The question is, the, the, the legislature opened the door to one condition, PTSD. So the question is, does the employee have PTSD? PTSD must be defined by the DSM-5. No dispute about that. And in fact, what we litigated... So what's the dispute then? Because that's what I'm saying. It has to be defined by... You can't dissect that paragraph in the way that you were dissecting it. I think maybe we're not disagreeing that I'm just being less clear than I could be because I agree that the definition is DSM-5. And so what we did in this case, we disputed whether the employee met DSM-5. That's what we did during trial. We were arguing over essentially uh, did the employee have sufficient symptoms of intrusion, criterion B, and sufficient uh, symptoms of avoidance, criterion C, and did he have enough impairment under criterion G. We weren't debating whether or not DSM-5 applied. We all agree it did. So whether or not DSM-5 applied is a theoretical legal issue that we didn't disagree about, so there was none. Everybody, I did, my expert, of course we were applying DSM-5. But the bottom line is it's not some abstract uh, enterprise. The, the, the goal is to use DM5 to decide whether the employee has PTSD arising out of his work, and that's the endeavor that the compensation judge went through and determined, no, he doesn't. So that's a fact question for fact witnesses. And what I'm concerned is that, is that the WCCA appears to be blending this into some kind of a legal question of compliance with a rule we don't have fact, quest fact witnesses decide legal questions. Courts decide legal questions. So the, the, the legislature directed fact witnesses, doctors of psychology and psychiatry, to help us decide if the employee has PTSD. So it's a fact question. But what we got back from the WCCA is some confusing compliance with 
rule, which sounds like a legal issue, and I don't know where they came up with the word compliance. So, they've, so what they've done is sent this case back to the trial court by eliminating, well, eliminating the rejection of their, their expert for no reason, and then having the, the trial court answer a different question. So with regard to Dr. Keller, the compensation judge says, I don't believe this expert is correct. He doesn't have PTSD. So now the WCCA says, well, we're, we're vacating that determination and we're sending it back to decide a different question that's not contained anywhere in the plain language of the statute to decide, did their expert comply with the rule, whether or not he has PTSD? I mean, in fact, they're not asking the judge to say, does he have PTSD or not? They're saying, did their expert comply with DSM-5? I don't even know what that means. Counsel, may, maybe this is too simplistic, but isn't what the Court of Appeals simply asking is for the comp judge to show his work? To say, of course you have, and, and the court makes this point, of course it is ultimately, and it's always up to the comp judge to make determinations of credibility, particularly with respect to expert witnesses as we have here to doctors, to say, I find this doctor more credible than that, than that doctor. That's always been the law, and it's still the law. But I think what the Court of Appeals was saying is, tell us why you made that choice. You made all these findings, but why is it? What is it about your selection of one doctor over the other that, that warrants deference? What is it about how each of the doctors decided avoidance, for instance? They, they came to different viewpoints on that, both using the DSMV. But... but yeah. So what is it that made RBC, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly? RBC. RBC, thank, thank you. you. What is it that made him more credible than Dr. Than Dr. Keller on this issue of avoidance, for instance? Your Honor, I wish that was the case, but that's not what they did. They vacated the finding that Keller was no good, for lack of a more articulate phrase, and they said, my expert didn't follow DSM-5. So they made determinations. They made factual determinations. They rejected, they rejected RBC. They didn't ask to show your work. They rejected him for false reasons, incorrect reasons. And they put back on the table Keller and not asking to show Counsel, your work. Counsel, let me Why ask you this standard? then. Should we be doing that then? Maybe the WCCA didn't do it, but do we need to do that? Uh, it, it how, all, how are we supposed to decide between these two, ver these two doctors? Um, you don't have to, Your Honor. It's for the trial judge. I mean, clearly, whether or not the employee has PTSD... I guess it, I said that right. My point is, shouldn't we be remanding to the trial judge to say, show your work? Uh, you know, I'd say the answer is no, Your Honor, because I think he did show his work uh, to the sufficient which our jurisprudence requires. He didn't have three findings saying, you know, I, he showed that he reviewed all the evidence. He made clear what he did. He followed the trail of evidence. He talked about the witnesses. He talked about my witness. He talked about the opinions that were in the case. He, he showed that he had reviewed all the documents. In his memorandum, he said, this is based on all the evidence. So the compensation judge did his job. He reviewed all the evidence. He made a conclusion. And, and there is no requirement that he explain, well, I decided that the avoidance wasn't enough. He decided, I accept the compensation, I, I accept expert number two. And again, this, if you review 
cases from the Work Comp Court of Appeals. This is not unusual. I lose cases all the time like this. I accept the employee's expert, period. I've lost 100, I met a client here in the room, I've lost 100 cases like that. He's this, telling the truth. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's how we do it. There's, there isn't a requirement that they explain which, which of the DSM-5. That just not, it's not required in anything we have, especially the statute, in all respect. <laughs> So would you agree there's really a two-prong analysis here? First, the question is whether they've got a diagnosis from a licensed person specified by the statute. And you would concede that they do, right? They do have that, Okay. Yes. And then second, that it qualifies under DSM-5. The, 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 their expert must apply DSM-5, So yes. can we tell from the comp judge's findings in what respects Dr. Keller's diagnosis did not comply with DSM-5? The, the compensation judge did not give us which part of the decision he didn't accept. But he does make clear that he doesn't, he rejects Dr. Keller's analysis. So he, um, he indicates that he's reviewed his reports and his opinions, and he's given us an opinion that he does not accept it. So no, th there isn't a burrowing down to which element failed. And that's the case all the time. I mean, if, if, if I litigate a question of permanent partial disability, you must prove that there's an impairment to a nerve. The compensation judges don't often say, I decided there's not a nerve impingement here. They just indicate that I don't believe the employee's met his burden of proof. I reject his expert. I'm going to rely on this other piece of evidence. And in the, the good part, I think, of, doc, of our trial judges, he does tell us what he relies on. It's not like we don't know. So he relied on Dr. Arbisi's opinion, and doctor's opinion, Dr. Arbisi's opinions are well described in both a long report and a hundred-plus page deposition testimony. And so what's our, there's no what's mystery. our standard of review in looking at this? So with regard to a fact question. The fact, yes, right. So the standard of review for the Work Comp Court of Appeals, I'll start there, is under 176.471. And so under the WCCA standard of review is they must affirm that there's substantial evidence. And this, this all changed in 1983. In 1983, there was a new law saying no longer does the WCA just, just, just supplant their opinion for the compensation judge. There must be deference to the fact finder. And the WCCA's um, deference is if a reasonable mind might find the evidence adequate, they must affirm whether or not they agree with it. Doesn't matter if they disagree. I mean, clearly they do disagree, but that's not relevant. So. The WCCA's limitation is defined in the statute and in the Hengemuel case from 1984, which we've been citing a thousand times. You don't need to give any deference to the WCCA in the interpretation of a fact question. So um, there's, the deference is to the fact finder. So again, this is not a case where we're jumping the gun and there was no fact finding. We had a full trial. Both sides could have won or lost. Both sides had competent counsel. We litigate all the time on these cases. We know each other well. The compensation judge is the same way. The judge, the deference is to the compensation judge, and I would say there's no reason to give deference to the WCCI on overturning a fact question, and I would ask that you apply 176-471 and hang a mule. What is the effect? Um, uh, I have great difficulty figuring out exactly what the WCCA did here, uh, and that's a con some concern, but do we, do we have any uh, concern about what the effect of this decision might be if we were to uh, not to um, reverse it? In other words, if we were to affirm it? Yes, and I, I, a significant effect. One of the questions, I think comp judges won't know what their job is. 
if you read this WCCA decision, you're left with a mystery because you have, on the one hand, you have 15D that says your job is to decide whether the employee has PTSD, listening to psychologists and psychiatrists who apply DSM-5. But then the standard outlined by the, comp, by the WCCA is compliance with a rule. I'm concerned that some compensation judges will then say, well, my question isn't whether I believe expert A or B, even if it's explained and even if I outline, but my job is only to determine whether the employee's expert has complied, whatever that means, with the rule. And I am no longer, I mean, they have language in here eviscerating 35 years of precedent under Nord that the compensation judge is tasked with deciding who's persuasive. So it's not just simply they're complaining about the record. They're saying no longer do compensation judges in this narrow area decide whether expert A or B is correct. The only task is to decide whether the employee has checked the box of compliance. And remember that this is a narrow exception to our general rule that mental stress-causing mental impairment claims aren't covered. So until 2013, we had no coverage at all for mental stress leading to mental impairment claims at all. That's the Lockwood case, which was codified in 2013. They opened the door a little bit, saying we're going to have compensable PTSD, but with conditions. So instead of making it a more constrained limitation, what the WCCA has done, it has, has lowered the standard. So if you apply this stat, statute, or this rule, excuse me, this decision, using what they're saying, there's this standard for every other case, I'm holding my hands up for the record, and there's this different standard for this narrow exception, a lower one of compliance. That cannot be workable. I don't even know how I'm going to try those cases if that's the rule. I, I, I'm not sure what they even mean. I think, I mean, truthfully, I'm not sure they thought it through when they issued the decision. What does compliance mean, and what did they leave practitioners with who, who litigate these things every day? So what I'm asking the court to do is return to the plain language, simply apply the statute as it is, and return uh, the trial court decision, which was a fair fight, well litigated by two competent attorneys. Thank you, counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Thank you very much. Ms. Boyce. May it please the court. My name is Mary Beth Boyce, and I represent respondent, Mr. Chad Smith. The crux of this case is statutory interpretation. This is about the language within Minnesota Statute 176.011, subdivision 15D, that defines a compensable mental impairment in two parts, 
MCIT and Carver County are attempting to subvert the statutorily mandated threshold test for PTSD claims into a battle of the experts. But MCIT and Carver County are ignoring the text of the statute. Minnesota Statute 176.011, Subdivision 15D, defines a compensable mental impairment in two parts. The first part is one that both parties agree on. PTSD must be diagnosed by a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist. The second prong is what is at issue before this court today. The language of the statute says that PTSD means the condition as described by the most recent diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders. Counsel, I'm not sure you're making this argument, but I think there may be a plausible argument that if you read the statute's plain language, you need two things. One, you need the opinion from the licensed psychi psychiatrist or psychologist, which Keller is. And number two, then that you would look only at the Keller testimony or report and decide, does it match up with the criteria in DSM-5? Are you making that argument? No, Your Honor. What I'm saying is, what the statute says is that the compensation judge has to review the DSM-5 PTSD criteria. So there's eight criteria set forth in the DSM-5. There's different iterations of the DSM. In 2013, the DSM-5 was published. That changed from the DSM-4, with the legislature points to by saying the most recent DSM. And the criteria actually changed. So we need the compensation judge to go through the criteria using not just the expert reports. We need that compensation so judge. So you're, you're conceding that the, um, the employer can have an expert who can dispute your expert's application of the DSM-5 criteria? Yes, Your Honor, they can dispute how the facts to the criteria, but what they can't change is the criteria. And that's no, what Dr. I, I understand that. I'm just trying to make sure I understand precisely what your argument is. So there's, there's nothing wrong with, by your analysis with the employer putting forth the opinion of, of an expert such as Dr. Arbizzi. To, to dispute your expert's opinion. Okay, you don't think the statute forecloses that? No, Thank absolutely. You. But what we need... Counsel, um, why doesn't that second sentence just tell everybody what the diagnosis, what, what um, treatise or what psychological, um, you know, book of knowledge that must be used? I mean, isn't that a reasonable interpretation that the legislature is just saying what source that this first part, the diagnosis, is going to use to get there? It's more than that, Your Honor, because they wouldn't have included it if we, need, if we didn't need to analyze it. So this, and Well, aren't there other standards, like an international standard for what constitutes PTSD? So it, wasn't the legislature just saying, don't use that standard, use the DSM? Exactly, Your Honor, and, the, and that's important because there's uh, disagreements about PTSD. This court noted in Doe versus... So how did our BC, Dr. BC, not apply the DSM? He imposed additional criteria. So he only looked at the symptoms reported um, to him in the 30-day window preceding his examination. He limited... But his... isn't that part of the diagnostic tools that underlie the DSM? No, and I think that's an important distinction. So there's the DSM-5, which is cited by the statute, incorporated by reference with the criteria, and then there's psychometric testing. So but that would, your expert used the same psychometric testing? Yes, but he relied on the standard. So you can use the psychometric testing, 
but you can't replace the psychometric testing with the DSM-5. So you can't just use the MMPI or the CAPS-5. So what they did is the CAPS-5 is there's three different versions. So there's the current, which is the last week, the month, and then the lifetime version. So he applied the past month version to, um, to Mr. Smith in order to limit what he was actually looking at. And, that, and he also did that when, so there's the 30-day window that he only looked at. And then he limited it to the two events because the CAPS-5 requires an index event. So the CAPS-5, you can use that to interpret the different criteria. So one question I have on that, so he actually did find criteria A was met. Correct, Your Honor. Even though the Compensation Court of Appeals seemed to say that he didn't, but we'll set that aside for a minute. It seems to me what our BC was saying, if you just read his whole opinion instead of just pick out little pieces of it, is that there was these two very significant events, and then he talked about some other things, which he considered, and he acknowledged that under criteria A. And then he said, but then when I look at the intrusion and I look at the avoidance, those things aren't connected to the events he was talking about, or the ones that were, were pretty minor, like I have to avoid peanuts. And so Abrisi looked at all of this and said, well, he met criteria five, but these other indications don't really rise to the level of PTSD. It seems like that's what his opinion is and what the Workers' Compensation Court of Appeals did is kind of pick out things they didn't like about it, but not look at it as an entire narrative. So why, is, why am I wrong about that impression after kind of, again, last night, reading through the whole report? Because he's, Your Honor, because he's imposing that additional criteria. So because he's only looking at the two events, he didn't count all the avoidance. So Mr. Smith but, had... Well, I don't think that that's true. I mean, he, he said in the opinion, I think you just agreed with me, that he actually considered more than just the two events. But the only avoidance that, mis, that Mr. Smith identified were the two things that related to those two events. And he didn't think that they rose to the level of being substantial enough. Um, two parts to that. So he only looked, but he only asked about avoidance about those two events. So Mr. Smith responded to a terrible motor vehicle collision um, involving kids after homecoming. And he, it was the same make and model of his wife's car. And that car triggered him every time he saw it. So in order to avoid it, he sold his wife's car. But Dr. Arbisi doesn't consider that because it doesn't, it wasn't those two particular events. Same with a nightmare. He has a nightmare about his gun not firing. He doesn't consider that nightmare because it's, it's not specifically tied with one of the two events. Well, what event is that tied to? Um, it doesn't tie to event, and the DSM-5 doesn't require it to. It specifically states in the text on page 273 that you can have, um, so you can have, uh, like, so a lot of people with PTSD, it's a stress disorder, and they have inappropriate stress reactions. So fear of a heart attack. So you're having concerns about um, a heart attack, and that's common with that, even though you didn't, a heart attack is not a criteria A event. Um, this is a new area of law, and for compensable standalone mental mental injuries, and as such, we need this court to give us a rule. And I respectfully disagree with counsel that I've, my firm has tried five PTSD cases in the last year and a half, and the compensation judges do go through criteria A through H. And in, these, in, in uh, psychological cases, we do not have to seek legal, leave of the court to have a deposition in, in the court because but it's I, complicated. But can I just go back to that? Because it, yes. it says right here, 273 deals with people under six, I think, but 271 says persistence avoidance of stimuli associated with the traumatic events. And B says presence of intrusion symptoms associated with the traumatic events. 
Now, this is maybe the problem that a judge is sitting up here trying to interpret the DSM, which is, I think, the point that your opposing counsel is making. But um, I, anyway, so I, are you saying that they don't have to be associated with the traumatic events? Um, not necessarily, not the specific traumatic events. I gave you the wrong site. It's on the bottom of 275. PTSD is characterized by a heightened sensitivity of potential threats. Um, in, including being sensitive to threat potentially caused by... But isn't this whole discussion we're having exactly the challenge that's raised with your interpretation that it requires a judge who really doesn't know what DSM, what post-traumatic stress disorder is, or lawyers who don't really... I mean, no, I, I, I'm not point-picking on you. I'm sorry, but, but people who are not psychologists or psychiatrists trying to apply a DSM criteria when they're not trained to do it. But respectfully, that was the legislature's decision. That well, according when they, to, where, when, and so where does it say that? Where does it, you said, I, I wrote it down, you said the compensation judge must apply the DSM, that that's what the statute says. So but, the, it's, but I'm reading it, and it says for purposes of this chapter, post-traumatic stress disorder means a condition as described. So where does it say the comp judge has to apply the DSM? Logically, on the plain meaning of the statute, the judge has to apply the law. The judge has to look for... For the purposes of this chapter, post-traumatic stress disorder means the condition as described in the most recently published edition of the DSM. It's not unusual for the compensation judge to have to look through and apply the facts to the law. This isn't a factual issue. This is about what the standard should be. Well, and of course it's a factual issue. Does he have PTSD or not? Isn't that the ultimate question that has to be decided? Respectfully, no, because that's not what the statute says. If PTSD is defined by well, so then, so then is opposing counsel right that the consequences of the decision here, as long as the plaintiff produces an expert that checks all the appropriate boxes, that's the end of the case? No, Your Honor, because the, the compensation judge has to go through each of the criteria and make that determination. They should not want this decision. This uniform application of law is good for everyone. If you change how we interpret the DSM, you can lower the standard for, for criteria A events. You can say that it doesn't have to be as stressful as actual or threatened death, because this expert says it doesn't have to be this way. Counsel, we worked over opposing counsel, several of us did, kind of hard on the comp judge's brevity, our con conclusory statements on which expert he accepted. Um, in connection with your appeal to the WCCA, did you appeal the, the what appear to be a lack of findings or lack of clear conclusions with regards to why one expert was more persuasive than the other? I did not appeal that issue, Your Honor. It, it is concerning. Um, the, the issue is the fact that we don't know what standard he used, so we don't even know how he applied the facts that we have uh, to the case. Um, there's, I think is there's... Mr. Jung correct that um, this kind of conclusory statement that I find one expert more persuasive than the other, that's not uncommon in workers' comp cases? I disagree with that, and I disagree especially with PTSD cases or cancer cases or um, when you're applying the statute to the law. The judges explain um, much more in depth. When you have a standard, when you have an occupational disease, um, you have to go through the factors, and you can't just say, one um, one expert is more persuasive as the other because the law requires it. Um, it's also important to note so, that... So, counsel, if I may on that, so help me with what you think the comp judge should have said, uh, for instance, on the avoidance issue. As he was comparing the two experts, what would have been satisfactory in your mind? What, what should we be, have been... What, what should he have said? 
He should have found that Mr. Smith had avoidance because of the medical records, because of... No, I'm, oh. I'm, I know you want that, oh, yeah. but, <laughs> but I'm, I'm wondering, as he compared these two doctors, what should he have said about their... Should he have said something about the why uh, Keller was uh, applied the DSMV correctly and, and RBC didn't? Or help me with how he should have made that comparison. Yes, he should have said... I find avoidance in this case, or I do not find that Mr. Smith has sufficiently met the threshold in this case. He just doesn't say anything, and he didn't even make a credibility determination of the experts. He found one expert more persuasive than the other. I guess that's what I'm asking. Is that what, what you're looking for? As you think back on these other five or so cases you say your firm has tried where the comp judges did go into more detail, what did they do that this, this comp judge did not do that you think is appropriate? They went through the criteria. So they said, I find that the employee has X amount of criteria A events. And in some cases, I think it's important, too, to distinguish there's the personal injury framework and then there's occupational disease. This was asked the compensation judge. He didn't determine if it was a personal injury or an occupational disease. So in those cases, the judges made that finding. They went through and said, I find uh, criteria A events. I find that the employee has or has not, which, which happens, um, has not sufficiently demonstrated intrusive symptoms, or I find the employee not credible, that um, the medical records don't support, are, are inconsistent with criteria do they, C. Do, do they say anything, though, about the, the, the relative credibility of the experts themselves and how they went about their, their work? They do less with... They've separated the two. The WCCA actually had another case similar to this Petrie versus Todd County, um, where they're looking at it on two separate issues. So they're looking at it, did the, did the expert make a finding? So did the psychi licensed psychiatrist or psychologist? And then the court is looking at the other factors to, is the, um, is the condition as described in the DSM? Counsel, counsel thank you for that. One, one other question. Um, Mr. Mr. Jung um, concerned me, at least, in terms of his statement about what this means going forward and how these cases are tried. And obviously that's something we have to be concerned about. We have to resolve this case, but we're always looking down the road. And this is a new statute. This is the first time this court has weighed in on this. And so, um, you know, we're concerned about how this is going to play out uh, for practitioners and, and, and everyone down the road. Can you speak to some of the concerns he raised and, and, and whether you agree with those in terms of, like, he says, I don't even know what, what uh, uh, compliance means. Are we going to have, are, are there going to be difficulties in, with respect to that? So help, help me with that. His concerns are unfounded because if we have an actual criteria, we have something to go off of. Um, there might be litigation as to what is, what is avoidance, um, and that, but that's something that was uh, defined by the legislature. The legislature passed a new presumption in two... Well, what does compliance mean? What do you, how, how will that be handled? It should be handled with consistent with, or as... Dis, the, it, the term should be used as described by the DSM. So what the, the court has to go through and at least make a finding on each of the factors. The court didn't even do... But, counsel, I, I thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I thought I understood your response to Justice Lillehug's question was that you did not appeal the issue of the lack thereof detailed findings. Because now it sounds like you are. Or you... So I need clarity, please. So let me uh, sparse that out for you. So I'm not saying 
that the findings, um, I didn't appeal the issue on the sufficiency of the findings, but on the standard. Had he used any standard, cited any statute, and went through the criteria, he could have made possibly um, more, uh, less, I mean, he could have had less than what I would have liked um, in an opinion, but because he didn't even put the standard and go through the standard, which is required by the law, it's not an issue as yeah, to Yeah, but how, how do we know that he didn't do that? The, the comp judge didn't go through each of the DSM-5 criteria and make mental findings, didn't articulate them on the paper. <clears throat> but, um, and I guess this goes back to Justice Thiessen's question. As I read the statute, I don't see anything saying the comp judge needs to show his or her work in connection with each of the DSM-5 findings, and that's why I asked you whether you appealed. What, what's your response? It, because we don't know what the compensation judge did, so because he abrogated his duty to apply the law to the uh, psychological expert who is essentially interpreting the law for us by what the criteria should mean, we have to look at what, our, what Dr. Arbisi did or did not do. And because Dr. Arbisi egregiously departed from the DSM-5 with the 30-day window, with the two events, with requiring as them As I understand win. it, your client appealed to the WCCA on the ground that the evidence was not sufficient uh, to support the comp judge's findings. Am I right about that? No, I believe, Your Honor, we, that we appealed on the issue of the legal standard and that he didn't apply the legal standard in 176.011 subdivision 15D that requires the analysis. How do we know that he didn't apply the legal standard if, if there's no requirement in the statute or in our case law that the comp judge lay out the particular findings as to the criteria? We don't know, and all we know is that he relied on an expert who didn't use the DSM-5 in the way that the DSM-5 is written. So we have to assume that. We have, okay. we have no, we don't, we don't know what he did. And because he didn't make those findings, he was asked repeatedly to make findings through A through H, and he didn't. He didn't make a finding on whether it was a personal injury and occupational disease. Uh, and because he didn't make those findings, we have, we have no idea. Um, we need this. Opposing counsel says this comp judge is now retired. Um, are you seeking a remand? I mean, let's say we, we disagree with the, the WCCA's framework of its analysis and we think something needs, else needs to be done. Is a remand appropriate? And if so, how do you remand to a retired work comp judge? I don't know how we remand to a retired work comp judge, um, but in, because it's, it is a mixed question of law and fact. So well, counsel, I mean, wouldn't it just be a remand to whoever is assigned the case? Because there could be any post-trial, post-hearing motions on lots of different types of cases and judges do retire, so that, who it goes to is not an issue. Right. And, and Counsel, it, though, d does our court have statutory authority to remand to the comp judge? If there's a remand here, doesn't our court, isn't our court limited to sending it back to the WCCA? Um, Your Honor, I, the WCCA did remand it to the lower court. I understand, but now we're here, and the question is what statutory authority does the Supreme Court have to remand? Believe, Your Honor, that they should just affirm the WCCA's finding. Yeah, I understand that, but all these questions are about if there's going to be a remand, where does it go? And I'm wondering whether or not our court has the statutory power to send a case back to the comp judge. 
Um, yes, Your Honor, because under the Workers' Compensation Act, the compensation judge is the finder of facts. So if there is additional facts to be found in this case, it's not for the WCCA, it's for the compensation judge to determine if they met the additional, if they met the criteria. The mental, it, I don't think it can be stressed enough that mental injuries are different. Um, the opposing counsel raised the issues of EKGs and MRIs, and we don't ask this court to interpret that, which is actually not entirely true because um, and the permanency schedules, the uh, permanent partial disability ratings, judges do actually look at MRIs and um, make, the, make determinations for that. But the difference is that MRIs and EKGs, they aren't cited to in the statute. Physical injuries are not defined in the statute. This is a carved out exception for the standalone mental mental claims. And because it's specifically linked, that's how we get here. Um, similarly, the, uh, in the paragraph above, um, it, uh, subdivision C defines um, the cancer presumption. So if an employee has a cancer and it's linked to their work activities and they were exposed to carcinogens, and these carcinogens are defined by the International Agency for, the research, for research on Cancer. So it's linking to an outside source. So they can disagree with um, if they were exposed to carcinogens. They can, they can disagree if they develop cancer. But what they can't disagree with is what the IARC says about the carcinogens. And that's the same here, is they can disagree on the facts of the case. They can disagree on um, part, they can disagree on whether the employee was credible. But what they can't disagree on is what the DSM-5 actually states. And that's because the legislature has incorporated these criteria by reference. We need this uniform criteria in order to get uniform application of the law. So is, two, two questions. So is the question then that you think a comp judge or this court now has to answer is whether Dr. Arbisi's report actually satisfied the DSM-5, whether he followed the DSM-5? And I understand that you think he didn't, but how is that not a determination that the comp judge, how do we know the comp judge didn't make that determination? I'm asked, the statute states that the PTSD means a condition, so the compensation judge should be the one going through the criteria. So your position is the compensation judge has to walk through each of the eight criteria and say, I found that there was uh, a traumatic event, I found that there was avoidance, I found that there were intrusive feelings, I found that this all occurred, that this has occurred within 30 days, not that it, the last 30 days, but that these things all happened within, the, within 30 days. Exactly, because you can't just rely on the expert reports. So then we're ignoring but all... But we can't rely on the expert reports because of what? Because of the statutory language? Oh, we can't just reply, rely on the expert reports because then we're ignoring the medical records. I mean, Mr. Smith was diagnosed by a psychiatrist. He's been treated uh, for this uh, disorder. He's been diagnosed by, I think, three, to three other separate providers. Of which both of the experts considered. Correct. And so, the, so they, he, Dr. BCN... Um, Dr. Keller both took that into account. So how do we know, so is the judge having to make his own or her own diagnosis basically? Not a diagnosis, but the judge has to follow the statute and because the statute cites directly to that criteria. So we should read change. the DSM-5 like it's a rule or regulation. We should interpret the DSM-5 with statutory canons of construction. Yes, okay. yes. Sir. That's your position. Okay. Even though the DSM-5 tells us not to do that. 
The DSM-5 acknowledges the fact that practitioners in the legal context do do that, but the legislature chose that. The legislature made that determination. So the legislature says we're going to use DSM-5, and we use DSM-5, which includes language that says lawyers and judges should not be using it for this purpose. They, and they so have don't a, we credit that after the legislature told us to credit that too? What they, do we do about this? They have an introduction to the DSM-5 that does say it's a cautionary that they're not, that they don't want practitioners such as us to be mm -hmm. making diagnoses, but for the legal framework to determine if these people get benefits or not, then we have to apply the factors because that's what they, that's what the legislator said. You're applying part of the DSM-5 that favors you and ignoring the part that doesn't. I mean, isn't, isn't that a problem? Uh, no, Your Honor, because I'm not, we're, the, the uh, statute does not state that the uh, judges should be making the diagnosis. We already have that in the first prong, that PTSD has to be diagnosed by licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but the judge has to go through the factors. Counsel, is another way to frame this to, is to say, and please correct me if, if, if I'm mischaracterizing this, but what I hear you to be saying, at least in part, is that this the DMS, DSMV doesn't supplant or do away with an expert using his or her expert opinions and analyses and judgment, but that that judgment and analyses has to be used within this, the context of the, the DSMV rule. So you're exercising that judgment and exercising that professional opinion, but within the context of these eight criteria. Is that a fair statement or not? My time has expired. May I briefly answer your question? Exactly, Your Honor. So if we, we, they have to play by the rules that the legislator has set forth. If you allow this departure, you're allowing all kinds of departure from the statute. We don't know, they could require that someone has to be involved in a shooting to be diagnosed with PTSD because that's what Dr. Arbisi believes it should be the case, and that's how he's interpreting the DSM-5, and that's how he believes that what only actual or threatened death would be. So that's too far away from what the text of the legislature has said inside the statute. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. Mr. Young, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Thank you. I'd like to begin by clarifying one of my earlier comments about what we know about the compensation judge's finding. I reread finding 44, and we now, it makes it very clear to me that we do know what the compensation judge concluded, because not only did he find Dr. Arbisi credible, but he adopted his opinions. So he said, these opinions of Arbisi are persuasive and are adopted. So that tells us the compensation judge concluded that the employee did not meet criterion B, C, and G, just as Dr. RBC said. So we do know what he did. First point. Second point is, it's clear from reading the statute that the fact that the legislature used a definition does not create a legal checklist or a legal standard. There's no question that reading the statute says mental impairment is a fact question to be determined by psychologists or psychologists and then the compensation judge can agree or disagree with that evaluation of whether they get one opinion or six opinions. And I also uh, found some case law about what the compensation judge must put in his opinion pursuant to MnSTAT 176371 
One of the cases I have before me is the WCCA case Wayne Roberts versus Hibbing Taconite, which cites another case, uh, Cherry versus Dunnick, Inc. I think that was one of mine. Um, indicates the following. Further, compensation did you, judge... Did you win that one? Excuse me? Did you win that one? I don't remember, Your Honor. <laughs> <laughs> I probably lost. I don't know. Uh, further, thank you for that, by the way. Um, further, a compensation judge need not provide a memorandum, and the memorandum need not discuss all the evidence presented at hearing. The, the statute says the judge must decide the disputed issues of fact and law, and here we only had disputed issues of fact, and he did so. So again, finding 44, he says, I have adopted the opinions of Dr. Arbisi, so we know what he, what he found, because Dr. Arbisi was clear, didn't have criterion B, C, and G. Opposing counsel says, so setting aside the checklist argument that, that we have here, I mean, I think we would all agree that the legislature intended DSM-5 to be used in some capacity here. Yes. They said so. Yes. And opposing counsel says that RBC's report egregiously failed to comply with DSM-5 and cites the 30-day uh, window, the two events, um, the reference to shooting. Um, can you respond to those concerns? Sure. First of all, these are fact questions. This goes to the weight of the expert. Dr. RBC absolutely did apply DSM-5. Counsel simply disagrees in the manner in which he applied it. They, did, they disputed what does criterion F mean. This is the 30-day criteria. They disagree about what it means. Okay, I'm not a psychologist. I obviously think Dr. RBC is right, full professor at the University of Minnesota, 27 years treating people with veterans from the you know, VA hospital. Professor of psychology knows more than I know. So yes, there's a disagreement in the manner in which he applied it. A fact question number two, not a deviation. So what Dr. RBC and Dr. Keller both did is they used things in the psychologist toolkit to decide whether the criterion were met. They didn't apply a different criteria, the AMA criteria. No one talked about any other criteria other than DSM-5. But both experts used their toolkit, which the statute says, we want psychologists to do this. They both used the MMPI. They both used the CAP-5. Dr. Keller used something called the Million Assessment Kit, which Dr. Arbisi doesn't like. So they're using their toolkits in psychologists, I'd never raise the argument that just because I don't agree with Dr. Keller, I think he's wrong, I think he's poorly trained, but I think he's entitled to his opinion. Same with Dr. Arbisi. We fought about whether one was right or wrong. We fought about who interpreted it properly. And listening to the first few minutes of the debate, well, he didn't do it right. And if you read his report in total, as Your Honor did, He's giving his best opinion about whether or not criterion B, C, and G applies. Those are the DSM criterion. He did nothing else. There's a disagreement of fact. And again, we know what the compensation judge concluded because he adopted Dr. Arbisi's opinion. Again, a customary phrase in workers' compensation. He could have said, I adopted them and here they are. But once you adopt them, you give this court and any reviewing court a map, a track to follow. Um, the other thing that I think is important to know is that when the legislature made the amendment in 2013, they didn't change any of these other, uh, any of the other relationship issues. I mean, the way we try cases, the burden of proof, 
looking at DSM, excuse me, looking at subdivision 15D, it opens the door to PTSD diagnosed by a psychologist or psychiatrist using the definition of DSM-5. It doesn't change the burden of proof. It doesn't change the process. It doesn't eliminate IMEs under 176.155. The process remains the same. We don't want to create a new standard of proof. There isn't a new standard of proof. There's a definition. And I don't know how we go from defining a term to creating a legal standard when it's, it's still a fact question. And I may have lost this one. I'll probably lose the next one. This time, the compensation judge in those infrequent cases agreed with me. And I think there's a reason for it. I think it's important to know that this was not an, a miscarriage of justice. I mean, the facts here are, were highly in dispute. This is a gentleman who was diagnosed by Dr. Keller with PTSD after he had already quit his job with the county, after he had already made a decision to move to a different career. Counsel, you're not disputing, though, that, no, that Mr. Smith was exposed to, to terrible, Correct. terrible events. Correct. In fact, um, I have great respect for law enforcement, and because I'm taking depositions of law enforcement officers every other week, I'm amazed by the work they do. And I have no quarrel with the idea that PTSD is a serious concern. And personally, I work to avoid any stigma. We're working on it every day to get, this is just mental health, physical health, it's people health. There's no difference. So I apply the same level of scrutiny and compassion to the condition and the law the same way. The day thing, because I'm still confused about, um, and maybe I need to go back and read both the briefs again, but I'm still confused about what the argument here is about whether or not that was or was not a violation or was or was not in compliance with uh, the, um, the, the uh, legal standard here. Well, first of all, I can say that Dr. Arbisi was applying DSM-5 criterion F. And what he's saying is if you no longer have symptoms, if the symptoms were 10 years ago, you may not have PTSD anymore. He's also, what you can see, there's a difference of opinion on connecting the criterion to the events. So one of my criticisms of Dr. Keller was, if you read his report, he lists 16 bad events. And they are there. We agree, criterion A is met. No dispute. And then he lists symptoms. And there's nothing in his report that makes any connection to them. The DSM requires a connection. And it's even harder when you're applying this to occupational disease. And remember that when he li listed 16 events, he said, well, there's probably 100 other ones. So essentially, they're saying, in the course of my career, I've had a lot of bad things happen to me. And, I, and we don't dispute that they did. And, and now I have these symptoms. And they. Dr. R. Keller doesn't make any effort to link them. And so what Dr. Arbisi was attempting to do is saying, are his avoidance symptoms linked to any of these bad events or not? Or are they linked to his the family issues that, the, that are in the file or the stress or the hours or things that aren't traumatic? Can I, and so can that I, was his effort. It was to link. Just to follow up on Justice Anderson's question, one of the things that's been confusing to me about this case is Dr. Arbisi's looking at... Um, Mr. Keller, just nine, ten months after he left his employment, if I got the dates right. Yes. And he's only saying, well, right now he doesn't have PTSD. How do we know whether he had PTSD in July of 2016? Can Dr. Arbisi say anything about that? 
Well, the Dr. Arbisi did not opine that he never had it at any time in his life, but the compensation judge can determine whether there's a compensable injury in, in pursuant to 15D. So what Dr. Arbisi also did was review all the records. And I asked him, does PTSD apply to this condition based on all the information? So yes, initially he said in his report, doesn't have PTSD now. But later he provided a more broad uh, description of his opinion in the deposition. And the other thing that's important to remember is by the time the employee got to Dr. Arbisi, he decided to stop treating. So we have this tiny window of treatment for PTSD. We also have, just for the record, other experts who found adjustment disorder or non-PTSD conditions as well. So I think that's not a concern in the big picture, but I understand the question. Uh, I have one second left, or my time might be up. I'm happy to entertain questions or sit down. I think we're good, counsel. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time Thanks today. Thanks to both Thank counsel you. for the help that you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course.